Hey everybody, this is episode 5 of 5 of the Human Performance Project podcast special edition series, mini-series episodes that we've been doing every Wednesday for the last 4 or 5 weeks. This last one is your bonus episode where we're going to answer some questions that listeners have lobbed our way, either via email or some of them have come to us in person from some of the rogue athletes in town. So we're going to work through these questions. I think my list has 10, but there may be other things that that pop up as we go through this discussion. So thanks to those who submitted questions. I think we've got a, a, a mix of more practical questions as so, as well as some more esoteric rabbit hole type questions. So hopefully we'll we'll satisfy all listeners with this one. So here we go. Let's get to the first question. And this is one that we just talked a little bit about offline, guys. And I'm going to take this to you first, Dr. Moose. And this one came up from a rogue athlete. What happens if you wake up on race morning and your HRV score is in the toilet and it tells you not to work out that day, but you got to go race because you can't move that around. So what do you do then? Okay, so uh, we were we, we were actually discussing this on uh, on Jason and I were discussing this on our run on Friday, and so I actually had an athlete that monitored uh, their HRV very regularly, and she messaged me the morning of a very big race. Same thing happened. She's like, "Oh my gosh, my score is like in the tank. It's it's not good." And so I we we kind of exchanged some of the information that was on there, and what happens is is I always tell people is like, don't measure on the day of a race. It's like, yeah. it, it doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> matter. And, but she was just part of a routine. And so she sends it. And what I looked at is she was in this really sympathetically dominant state, which actually for racing, like for a one-time event is actually a really good thing. So a lot of the work that we do around race day with, with an athlete is we want to make sure the body's primed, but we don't want to shift them parasympathetic. I want, like, if you're racing the Olympic trials, or you're racing a big marathon, or you're something like that, I kind of want you in a fight or flight state. Like I want you really like going really keyed up. And so basically what I did is I told her, I said, you know, I was like, you kind of have to ignore that because like if this was a day in day out training, we may say, oh, your body may just be a little bit overstimulated and, and that's gonna drop your a HRV score because your body's kind of in this fight or flight stage. It may appear that you need to recover, but oftentimes on race day, we're just super stressed. And so an HRV score on a, on a race day is going to indicate maybe your HRV is lower. But the HRV, remember, is not a predictor of, of essentially how well you can do a workout. It's predicting how basically your stress response to your body. And so on a race day, we kind, you kind of want to be a little bit stressed out. And so that's why I tell athletes don't really monitor it on the like the couple days leading up to a race because it's going to look a little poor because just just from a a whole stress standpoint your body's going to be kind of getting amped up getting keyed up you're going to be a little nervous my coach in in high school he used to tell me uh, i was like man i'm really nervous he's like that's good if you're not nervous you're either dead or don't care <laughs> and <laughs> right. so you know and so so it's gonna it, it a lot of times if you if you measure like leading up to like a race it's going to it, it's gonna it's gonna look poor but that's simply just because your your nervous system in your body is is getting up into this kind of fight or flight state and so typically that's what's going to happen so i tell athletes not to really measure like within the like three to five days of a race um, it's kind of like all that, you know, the, the, the mystery things that happen around a taper where everything starts to kind of creep up. Right. And so, so that's typically like the way I look at it is, you know, if everything's been trending in the right direction leading up to your, your big event, it's okay just to kind of say, you know what, I'm just going to kind of back off and not monitor this and just try to do as many things as I can to feel fresh and feel good. Uh, because that, that's typically, it's going to, it, it will, if, if your, if your body is kind of getting up into that sympathetic state, which you want it to for racing, then, uh, th then it's going to, it may look poor, but that doesn't actually have any indication on how you're going to perform because she actually went out and ran great. So yeah. it was, yeah. I guess it does underscore though, the fact that after you come off of that experience, you need to recover appropriately yeah. from, from the race. Yeah. It, it's costing you something to have that big day. Yeah. And therefore, once you're bouncing back, you got to make sure that you're 
really careful in the following weeks. I always tell athletes too, it's as important to get like everything kind of balanced out after like a PR and a good race as it is like to go and check in on things after a bad race. So because from like a like a, a physiologic and kind of neurologic standpoint, let's say you you know, you run a PR in a marathon, your body's never done that. It's got to integrate in all these different changes from like a physiologic, metabolic, neurologic like component after it does that. So you can, you know, you can continue to have those performances. And that's often one of the things that I see is athletes have these great performances and then they just, they want to go out and start blasting it again right afterwards. And it's important to like, kind of like step back, take a little time to let your body adapt and, and basically facilitate those changes that have already happened in there. Um, as much as it is, if you had a bad race to go figure out why you had a bad race too. Anything to add, Jason? I think that covers We it. got it? Yeah. I was reading a tweet yesterday from Des Linden after Boston. She was talking about how she physically feels good, but she knows that mentally she's not there, you know, because she went to the well not only on race day, but also before race day with all of the responsibilities of defending champion. And I think that sometimes we don't give ourselves permission after a race to recover from the mental side of things as well as the physical side. We always want to kind of jump right back in and not let our mind reset. Yeah. Sometimes people are just really excited too. Like, you know, they're like, oh man, I just had this great PR. I just did really good. And they're really motivated and excited. And so that that's one of those things that's kind of figuring out afterwards how to kind of curtail that excitement. Let your body rest and recover, but still kind of taking the uh you know the benefits of everything and, and trying to let your body like integrate them in too so so speaking of hrv another related question in a sense and jason you said you talked about how hrv can be negatively affected but we didn't really talk about how we can actually positively affect hrv other than just simply taking more recovery time so what are the things that influence it on the positive side? Uh, sleep will help a lot. Um, you know, so we talked about how poor dieting um, can affect HRV, especially alcohol. So obviously um, not drinking will help. And then keeping inflammatory foods down, um, I find for me especially sugar will help a lot. And then uh, recovery modalities. So if you're if you're in tune with kind of how you're feeling between a sympathetic or a parasympathetic dominant state, um, you can work on recovery modalities to help balance that. So sometimes that might be contrast therapy or a cold tub or massage, uh, something to that effect. And um, rest is a huge thing. If um, I take a couple of days off from running. And just do some light mobility work and kind of focus on recovery modalities. Then I notice that um, I get into a much better state physiologically. So I think those are kind of the key ones. You have anything you did? No? Yeah, I think um, you know, kind of looking at like the different aspects of of those things. I think yeah, massage, body work. Like if your body is really stuck in like uh, like a sympathetically dominant state, so you're kind of really keyed up. I think massage, um, acupuncture chiropractic, uh, those kind of things can actually be really, really good. Uh, sauna therapy can go kind of either way on that. In a parasympathetic, um, you want to work on some of the more stimulatory uh, things in that area. So like deep tissue massage, if you're in a really deep, like overtraining mode, like deep tissue massage can be really good. Uh, kind of like hot, cold contrast can be really stimulatory as well. Um, dry sauna can help kind of push up the parasympathetics as well. And so it's kind of understanding, you know, some of these ro recovery modalities and how they have an effect on top of the nervous system as well, too. Um, so, so the things like if you're in that sympathetic state, you want to focus on things that are more relaxing. So like instead of doing a deep tissue massage, you may do more of like a therapeutic relaxing massage. Um, chiropractic is great for moving the body from like a sympathetic state to a parasympathetic state acupuncture kind of same thing so it's it's kind of knowing like if, if so like and on the parasympathetic side like the cryo chambers are really good because they're very stimulatory and so if you're in a parasympathetic dominant the cry, uh, the cryo chambers and stuff like that can be really good so it's, it's kind of understanding like kind of looking at the recovery modality and saying okay is this more like stimulatory to the body 
or is it more relaxing to the body? And so if you're in more of that sympathetic dominant versus parasympathetic, when you're looking at an HRV, that can be one of those, those, those kind of things as far as how you can influence those. But big things are like massage, body work, acupuncture, hot, cold therapy. And uh, yeah, those, those typically are the ones that can really help to, to balance out those kind of things. So we'll probably do a whole uh, episode on recovery modalities in the yeah. central nervous system. So you're basically wanting to do the thing that will push you the opposite way. Yeah. Yeah. So give us a quick reminder then on what is parasympathetic and sympathetic and what do those mean for what state you're in and what that means for your body. So easiest way that I like remember it is like sympathetic is stress. So S and S, right? So your body's in this like heightened stress response. So if you find yourself like being really agitated by, you know, all kinds of different people, really just easily like irritated. A lot of times your body's in this this kind of sympathetic fight or flight. It's viewing everything as a uh, as a threat. And so when you move past that kind of initial kind of stress response and your body kind of goes into basically the burnout phase, that's more of when your body, your parasympathetics kick in because it's your rest, digest, and heal nervous system. And so basically what your body's doing is it's forcing you into basically forced recovery. So it's not going to want to like kind of get you up. That's where it's like you're, you're training and you're like, oh my gosh, like I've got to, I, I can't get out of bed at four, you know, like five o'clock in the morning to come do my morning run. I feel tired all through the day. I'm dragging and I'm just really, you know, in this, I'm just feeling really tired. And so that's kind of a really, that, that's when your body's forced you into like a really deep kind of parasympathetic state because you've burnt out all your your reserves and that's all it's trying to do is recover you so it's basically taking your nervous system and forcing you into that and so that's one of the things is when you're paying to paying attention to recovery and balance your body your body's not going to force you because we always say it's like you either can recover correctly or your body is eventually going to force you to recover through an injury or through this kind of the parasympathetics in the nervous system just basically shutting you down saying no, just go rest, sleep, recover, those kind of things. So, um, so just think sympathetic equals stress. And then parasympathetic is the kind of rest, digest, and heal. Got it. So how then do those manifest in terms of heart rate variability? Like what are you going to see? for your HRV if you're in sympathetic versus parasympathetic? So when you're in sympathetic, your heart is going to be, it's going to be much more coordinated and rhythmic. So there's going to be less of a variability because you want, when you're running from that tiger and that stress response, you want a very coordinated, um, very reliable, like very, very little change in your in the time in between your heart rate. So it's going to be like, boom, 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 yep. boom. Whereas when it's parasympathetic, your heart can kind of just be like, beat, beat, <laughs> beat. And it kind of, there, there's just more variability Got to it. it. So that's where they're talking about that. Is it, it's really the amount of time in between each heartbeat. And so when you're in that sympathetic state, it's, it's just more consistent. And so you're, you, there's lower variability in it. And when you're, you're more recovered, there's going to be a little bit more variability in that whole thing. Got it. Hopefully everybody gets it now. <laughs> <laughs> the okay, so extending that discussion, what about breathing? It seems like I've heard a lot, and this is really my question, not an audience member question, but I've heard a lot about different breathing techniques that can help flip these things as well. So, what do you know about breathing? How it might affect which state you're in, and what you can do for recovery? Yeah, so kind of like how when your your heart rate is is really coordinated when you're stressed, it's like when you're working out, right? Your breathing becomes more rhythmic, more you know, on the, the it, more into a rhythm, more regular, more often. It, so if you can you can take some time and do some breathing exercises, you can shift because if you're breathing in through your nose, out through your mouth, that's actually stimulating what's called the the, the vagus nerve or the vagal pathway in the body. And that's one of your most powerful parasympathetic nerves in the body. So breathing can actually stimulate a parasympathetic response. And so a lot of people, when they actually first try some of these breathing techniques where you're like square breathing, where you're kind of breathing in through your nose for like four to eight seconds, holding for four to eight seconds, breathing out through your mouth for four to eight seconds, they're going to find it actually really challenging. And you're like, I mean, I can run 20 miles and I can't sit here, lay on my back and try to like, breathe in for eight, hold for eight, 
breathe out for eight. It becomes it just it just creates this whole effect in your body because you're not in contact with that kind of rest, like that parasympathetic nervous system. And so it's a way that you can actually train it, train your body to kind of shift is take some time, do some breathing, do stuff like that. And so that's one of the things we hear with people when we recommend some breathing exercises or things like that to help kind of help them to start to control that is it's actually a really hard struggle for them. So there's a lot of, of different breathing techniques. You know, you can study, you can go on and, and, and online and find a number of different ones. But a lot of it is, is, is kind of activating that vagal pathway. If you're going in through your nose and out through your mouth, you're really stimulating that, the, the vagus nerve um, through that whole area. So another reason to meditate yeah with breathing yep okay interesting all right let's switch gears a little bit we talked about hrv kind of testing we've got another listener question where he's also wondering what other tests he might be looking at so the question is what additional tests do you recommend in addition to the regular annual blood work for unexplained muscle weakness and fatigue leading to a progressive decline in running performance so I would say for the most part, you can get about 90% of the information that you need from regular blood work. Now, it depends on what your practitioner is, what they consider the standard routine blood work. If you have a CBC, uh, ferritin marker, a comprehensive metabolic panel, thyroid panel, homocysteine C-reactive protein, which should be fairly standard. The only ones that might not be are homocysteine, C-reactive protein, and then obviously vitamin D um, in that area. You can really garner most of the information that you need about the, if you're having dropped off performance, if somebody knows how to read it. So I, wanted, I, I, I thought about it last time when we were talking about the one marker that really shows like energy that not many doctors are familiar with that basically is showing the status of how your body's making energy. And that marker's in the, 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 the CMP, the Comprehensive Metabolic Panel. It's CO2. Most people look at it and they don't really even know what it is. But if, you, if we go back to basic biochemistry, when we have cellular metabolism, it's, sens it's essentially carbohydrates combusted with oxygen releases CO2 and water. So if your CO2 is below a 25, oftentimes that means that your body's not making energy efficiently. And so I see this all the time when people come in and they're kind of having the, you know, muscle tiredness, muscle weakness, those kind of things is, is their CO2 marker is not, it is actually below 25. So they actually need some more B vitamins, maybe some coenzyme Q10, some other things like that to kind of get this whole cellular energy cycle producing again. And so that, that's, that's a common thing that I actually see is, 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 is that marker being low. And if you address that, then your body starts to make energy and output. And so CO2 is, is, is a marker, but it also is one of the things that indicates our body's ability to buffer lactic acid because there's a whole nother pathway in the body, uh, a couple enzymes in the blood called carbonic anhydrase that essentially takes that CO2 and converts it to bicarbonate, which then your body uses as the buffering for buffering lactic acid, buffering metabolic acids. And so if that marker is low, you know, A, you're not making energy, and then B, you don't have a good buffering system in place. And so if we correct those markers, oftentimes the things that people struggle with in their, their training goes away. Now, on that other note, there's a couple other things that we typically see in this area. One of the other ones that can really affect people that we do sometimes is a stool sample. Because I, we, I've, uh, I don't know if we talked about it on here, but on my Instagram, I do some videos uh, I call Muscle Monday. And essentially what we talk about is the, the muscle like meridian connection. And so our quads and hamstrings in, in acupuncture are related to the uh, large intestine and small intestine. And so the stool sample becomes really important when people have this kind of chronic, tired, heavy, dead leg feeling is sometimes there's some imbalances going on in the gut with like too much bad bacteria, not enough good bacteria, maybe some yeast, mold, fungus, parasites, those kind of things. And so we need to take a look at that because with that relationship in, in Chinese medicine, um, then you can see that, that that actually could be affecting your muscle performance. So oftentimes we'll look at a stool sample. We do, I, I do a meridian analysis with all of my patients as well, just to get an idea of the energy flow in each one of the 12 meridians as well. And so that, that's another thing that I know not a lot of people do, and, and you're gonna, it's going to be kind of hard-pressed to maybe find a doctor that's going to do that. 
Um, and then the, the third test that I'll do occasionally when we when we need to look is an organic acids test, which is a urinary screen of a bunch of urinary metabolites. And that'll give us everything from like yeast and fungus to bacterial infections to uh, different B vitamin pathways, other toxicity pathways in the body, maybe some genetic things that are going on. But really like down the line, that, that, that's more down the line when we're kind of working on some things like blood work and like other things that aren't working. I'll use that as kind of this like kind of catch all screen to screen some of the, the, the you know, the, the outliers or some like maybe like weird things that are just not getting missed that are happening in the whole metabolic process. But typically with most blood work, if you have somebody who's like knows how to read it for anemias, blood sugar uh, and energy metabolism. And then also with the, the other, um, on, on the blood work too, making sure you have a complete thyroid panel with like TSH, free T3, free T4, uh, total T3, total T3, or total T3, total T4, and antibodies is also important because that can, our, basically our thyroid status is, is if we don't have efficient thyroid status, that's kind of how, that what we're measuring with the CO2 is we're measuring the output of the Krebs cycle. The thyroid hormone basically is making sure that that cycle spins as fast as it can. It's kind of the the gas pedal. So it's like, if you don't have enough thyroid hormone, that can also be another issue. So really for, for the most part, a general blood panel with like, yeah, CBC, ferritin, uh, CMP, vitamin D, homocysteine, uh, C-reactive protein, yeah, vitamin D and thyroid hormone panel. You can really gain most of everything that you need to know. And then, you know, if there's maybe some markers or indication that like a stool sample may be necessary or you know and then as we get down the line if things aren't working we might run an organic acids test so those are kind of the the markers and things that that i look at and with that i mean yeah most you can really identify most everything and there's not really much need for some of the some of these other tests and stuff like that that are out there so the other reminder though there is that even if it's within the normal range it may still be an issue for you if it's the abnormal range for athletes in their performance, right? Yeah. So, so it, it, it's really understanding, like, as we talked about in the other one is that, you know, in one of the other podcasts is that, that, you know, the, to be considered sick by the medical world, it's like the, the work, the medical world is just concerned that you're not sick or diseased. And so there's that two standard deviation range as an athlete, you really just want to tighten that up and be in that, you know, that athletic performance range. So you're making sure that you're getting the most benefit of that. And oftentimes when performance dec like performance decreases are happening, you're just outside that, that first range and, and, and people aren't, you know, the, the doctors, they, they've got a lot of patients. They've got a lot to do. They're just really concerned if you're sick and if you're not sick, then, then, you know, that their job is to make sure that you're not sick. And so you got to look from a standpoint at, at somebody who's looking at things from a wellness standpoint or a performance standpoint. So along those lines, another question that came actually through our podcast training group is what tips do you have for choosing a primary care physician that will consider these factors? So really looking for a practitioner that practices functional medicine is, is kind of the, the first place to, cause those, the, that's kind of, it's kind of a new field of like wellness and health and medicine in different areas where people are really focused more on the wellness preventative side. And so focusing and trying to find somebody who, who is doing more of a functional medicine approach than the, than, you know, the traditional medicine or somehow blends the two. We have an awesome uh, place in Austin um, there. It's called the Wiseman clinic and they do a really great job of, you know, integrating like, you know, traditional like PC, you know, primary care provider, but also looking at like wellness and all of that as well. We've, we've worked with them quite a bit. So it's kind of finding that, you know, somebody who's maybe a little more versed in, in what we would call functional medicine, which is kind of a new field that a lot of people maybe aren't familiar with as much. Um, so finding somebody who does that and can help kind of guide you through that area is, is one of the things that becomes really important. Are, are there um, maybe like some questions one could ask a primary care physician to sort of figure out whether or not they're in that functional medicine space? I mean, I guess the first thing would be like, are you a functional medicine doctor? But I was kind of thinking, you know, maybe what, what would be your sort of tendency to recommend a pharmaceutical or a surgical intervention or something like that? Or how can, how can one kind of gauge? 
really um, i i think one of the things that initially is 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 kind of seeing if if their philosophy is you know are there any asking them about like diet lifestyle things because the the functional medicine practitioner initially is going to be they're going to want to like know like like lifestyle diet those kind of things instead of a lot of times a western like practitioner is just going to like say they're going to do the quick read over the labs a couple quick procedures but a lot of the you can gather a lot from how they interview you they want to know like lifestyle stresses diet those kind of things and so if you start to have those conversations um, with them and they're really open to like discussing different ideas um, about like diet and lifestyle i think you're that that's kind of on the right track and then asking them about you know the different tests that they you know would recommend and and those kind of things looking for you know trying to find a whole comprehensive um panel on that but i think really is 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 trying to single out somebody who who maybe does that that is like kind of working in that functional medicine um like area is, is going to be probably the best maybe asking them like their thoughts on functional medicine like you know, are you familiar with that? Like, what are your thoughts on that as you're kind of going through the interviewing process with the, you know, with the doctor in that area? So, Wiseman Clinics there on B Caves, not too far down from your. I think I think they have place. like four clinics in Austin oh, now. Do you? Yeah, okay. they have one. They have them up north. They have them central. They have them uh, a nice. lot of different places. Yeah, they, and they've been. We've worked with people from all like like all the different clinics, and they're they really are a fantastic group. I I can't say enough about the the work that they do. So. So there you go. If you're in Austin, check out the Wiseman Clinic. All right, we've got a bunch of questions that I want to get to on nutrition in various forms. That seemed to be a big topic. So we'll start. We'll just kind of roll through these. First question, and I'm going to take this to you, Jason, because you're obviously experimenting a lot with macronutrients yourself. How does macronutrient timing matter? And or does meal timing matter throughout the day in terms of how someone's feeling and then ultimately how their body responds to what they're eating? That's a good question. And I think this one ultimately is going to come down to a bit of individualization. But from a high level perspective, I haven't really seen any evidence that there is... Um, really a, a sort of consistent macronutrient timing approach that's going to produce uh, optimal outcomes. And so it's really about sort of your optimal out health outcomes as you experiment with macronutrient timing. I mean, me, I eat um, pretty much a, a balanced palate throughout the day at all of my meals. Um, so, you know, meat, fat, carbohydrate in the morning, at lunch, at dinner, if anything, I maybe will go light sometimes on carbohydrates in the morning um, and lighter on like fat and protein in the evening. And and it can be like individualization could be anything from like your level of carbohydrate tolerance to how well you digest fat and protein. So if you might have some kind of like digestive enzyme problem or something that makes it a little more difficult for you to digest some foods, then you might not want to eat them as much before you go to sleep so that you don't have any problem in the night with digestion. Um, I really look at um, more like the timing of when I eat throughout the day and then how much I eat at any given time. So our metabolism is most active in the morning and least active in the evening. And excess caloric intake in the evening is more likely to get stored as fat in your body rather than burned as energy. And so I, the general rule of thumb I give is eat like a king at breakfast, a prince at lunch, and a pauper at dinner. So you're eating kind of the most food that you're going to eat in a given meal in the morning and then least in the evening. Um, and then I, I'm a fan of time-restricted eating. Um, so that's basically taking like set windows, eating within those, and then whatever you whatever time you have outside of that window is a fasting period. So for me, I just basically try to eat uh, after the sun comes up and before the sun goes down and I keep all my eating in that window. I don't always stick to these principles. So a couple of reasons why I deviate from this. I have a six year old, I have to put him on the bus most days. So I wake up at 4.30 in the morning and I work. That's my time to like learn and do productive things for myself. Um, and so I'm up obviously a few hours before the sun comes up and I can't always make it until the sun comes up before I eat something. Um, 
if I am particularly working on fat adaptation as part of my training, then I'll focus on uh, fasted running a lot or fasted strength training, whatever kind of aerobic exercise I'm going to do on that day. So um, if I have up to, say, 90 minutes of aerobic exercise, then I'll try to fast bef before I exercise or just not eat before I exercise and then eat after that. Um, and that's so that's probably my general guidelines on that one and then if you have anything to add no yeah so one of the things i think it i, I think it kind of goes with intensity of your your workout so like jason's doing a lot of long um you know like maybe not at like not as intense workout so he's doing longer stuff and so the fasted the the run like running in a fasted state is a really great way to increase your body's basically your body's ability to access like fat for storage and so that it, but it depends on the intensity of the uh, of the workout. I remember I had an athlete I was working with that was uh, trained by Renato Canova, and they have these 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 workouts where they call them a special block training. And so they'll go in the morning and they'll do it's like alternating like either 5k or 10k like and they do them like in and out and then they finish it and they they are not allowed to eat for like six or eight hours and they go back and they essentially do like half of the workout again if I like with like alternating like these different like paces at 5k and they're trying to they're they're trying to work on basically the body running on empty and all of that and i always thought it was kind of a weird thing i know obviously you got to get used to running like fast depleted but i always thought for for me i always thought kind of like jason right like if you're doing some like easier stuff like without like in a fasted state it's less stressful on your body to do something like that. And I know they're not doing this all, and this is actually a planned workout to work on some of those things. But I think you can really, like, if you're doing some easier stuff, you can do it in a fasted state, and that would actually help. And then if you, let's say you're, you've got an intense workout, you're doing something that's going to require, you know, a little bit more energy. I think that eating, if you're, like, with the timing of it, eating carbohydrates around, you know, the intensity, so maybe a couple hours before you do your intense effort, and then a couple hours afterwards. And it's almost like this cycle, right? Where you, when you're doing like easier stuff, you're maybe focusing on like more protein and fat, less carbohydrate in that area. And then leading up into your, your harder workouts, you're maybe adding in a little bit more carbohydrate, refueling with a little more carbohydrate. And based on your intensity, you're kind of doing this, this little kind of ebb and flow. And so your body, it, it, it challenges your body to, to utilize these things because in a harder effort, maybe like a 10K or 5K pace effort, or if you're um, you know, doing like a mile or an 800 or something, you're really fueling up with that. But then on your easier runs, yeah, you maybe do your easy runs in more of a fasted state in the morning. So you can really work on you know, accessing more fuel from fat and all of that. And you're kind of, kind of balancing it that way. And so you kind of get in this rhythm to where you, you, you start to learn a little bit of, of timing in that area. And a lot of it just depends on, uh, on the intensity of what you're doing and, and those kind of things. So I think, yeah, like Jason's like exactly right for like a long, you know, doing like a long, you know, maybe 90 minutes to, you know, two to three out, you know, that, that, that can be really, if you're doing a 90 minute easy run in a fasted state, that can really shift you um, into more of a fat burning metabolism. And then if, yeah, you have to do a harder workout, you know, something 5k, 10k half marathon, you might want to look at like, you know, cycling in some, some carbohydrates. And then I think always too, like making sure that your caloric load is, is up. So even like a, a one day of refueling can actually be like really beneficial where you just kind of put a lot of all the fuels in, yeah, you know, in yeah. your, in, in your training. And I think people get so like, dialed in on these macros and stuff like that and i know i have and there's just days where i was like oh, i don't even care like i just gotta eat like lots of different things and so i think like uh like a caloric refueling day is is important as well too and we're gonna really dive into a lot of this and uh in future podcasts about kind of macronutrient cycling like how to like pair it with with everything but for the most part it's like 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 jason said it's if you're doing easier stuff you don't need as many carbs or fuel but as you get into some more of these intense workouts you want to you want to try to time your carbohydrates more around the intensity of of a workout to make sure that you 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 have you're fully fueled in that area yeah so i guess um, a couple more things i'd say chris and i can give you some resources if you want to put these in the show notes but so recent research has shown that fasted fasted aerobic exercise up to about one hour will yield benefits in 
fat utilization, so making adaptations toward better fat utilization. Uh, beyond 60 minutes, there's not really any benefit. So, I, I mean, for me, up to 90 minutes, I just don't have any desire really to eat, and so I don't. I just don't want to carry it or fuss with it. Um, and then these, the research has also shown that for that eating before intense exercise or exercise really over about an hour will improve performance. And so, uh, you know, if I'm going to do a quality workout one day, I eat some food before that and then I eat before long runs. And uh, then I and in a long run, I eat during the workout as well. So I often don't eat before a long run and often don't have anything during the run except for maybe some Gatorade that we have at our water stops. Is that a bad thing? Um, I don't think it's a bad thing. I, I don't know what benefit you're gaining from it, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's just pure and simple easy. That's, uh, yeah. that's what it comes down to. <laughs> there, there might be, you know, it's one of those things where you might be, uh, if you were to, like, figure out, you know, figure out how to do a little bit of fueling before, per se, a long run, it may it may help you to kind of get a little bit like you know more out of it but obviously as as it's going to be figuring out how your stomach holds like how quickly you digest because like some people you know they could eat right like within 30 minutes or 45 minutes of of a workout and be completely fine and then other people it might take them like an hour or two to like to digest and so it's really identifying like how your like how quickly like your basically your your transit time and elimination time is too. Um, that that also is is kind of one of those things to play with because yeah, some people you know yeah they can eat within 30 minutes and like you know eat a bar on the way to a workout and they're they're good to go. And then there's other people that's like no, I have to get up at like 3:30, eat my meal, go back yeah. to sleep, and you know those kind of things like that. So, so we've covered this before on the Running Rogue podcast, but I always go back to the saying we had in the Marine Corps, which is you train like you fight. And for ultra runners, we are going to have to eat and drink a lot during an event, especially something that's over five hours in duration. And so, you really have to spend time in those long runs, which I call the laboratory, experimenting on like what can I eat, how much can I eat, how much water do I have to drink to make sure that I'm digesting all the food that I'm eating. And so even if you didn't really want to eat on the long runs, you need to so that you can practice for the race. And that's just part of your sort of race-specific training and making sure that you're, you're ready to go. For the 50-miler, that will matter for sure. Yeah. For a marathon, it's different. Uh, <clears throat> it's different because I'm not taking in a lot. Okay, on related point, somebody's asking about gels and alternatives to gels. I think we scare people a little bit talking about sugar when it comes to using gels on race day. What should people consider as alternative long run fuels if they want to get away from the hardcore high fructose corn syrup stuff? Yeah, uh, so super starch is a good option. Um, so you can. Yeah, we talked about you can before. Um, you can is a corn based product. Um, so like if you don't like grains for whatever reason, or you have some kind of sensitivity to that, that may be something to avoid though. I don't know if it's still going to have the same effect as it goes through the, the sort of process to turn it from a starch to a super starch. So that's one option. Um, nut butters are another option. So RX bar recently came out with some nut butters where they take, um, not peanuts, almonds, they mix it with some date. So you get a little bit of carbohydrate in there and then you get some fat and protein. Um, so I, I like those. I've been eating those. Um, depending on kind of like the duration of what you're engaged in, I think will also dictate. So I just think that if you work on your fat adaptation, uh, and, or like your metabolic flexibility so that you can really switch between fueling on fat or glycogen, then for the most part, you're not really going to need gels. I don't really think that for a 60 to 90 minute workout, which is really as far as we get, even in most of the team rogue workouts that we do here, uh, you don't really need to fuel and, um, it could be, you know, constantly wanting to consume gel could be a sign of dependency or um, a high degree of metabolic inflexibility for someone that just really can't access fat because they're constantly consuming uh, high levels of carbohydrate in their diet and sugar. And so um, I would say 
first things first, try to wean yourself off of like generally a lot of food during workouts. And then during a race, either go for some kind of a super starch or um, maybe like, um, you know, I use a lot of tailwind. I feel like the maltodextrin does a little better for me than what I find in, in goo and gel blocks. But even then, you know, you probably get through it okay on a race. And so it's not something to worry about too much. Yeah, I know that, uh, like, you're talking about dates and all that. Dates are actually a really good source of uh, just basically simple glucose. So they're they're actually pretty pretty good. So um, I know uh, Brendan Brazier, who he's, uh, he's a vegan triathlete. He has some good recipes for, uh, in his book, Thrive, um, that, that has some good different gel um, options that you can kind of make on your own and all that with, like, dates and date paste and, and those kind of things. And so... Um, we find that to be actually really, really beneficial as well too. You know, obviously, you know, kind of figuring figuring those out, how you you store those and transport those for for yourself as you would like a normal gel. But I've had a, a number of athletes that we've given um, that basically, you know, those recipes to, and and, and they do those. And so um, it's a little bit just it's a little bit simpler. There's you know, and there's some mineral profile in that that helps to to digest that instead of just some of the you know, the, the glucose and, and, uh, maltodextrin syrup and those kind of things. And we're working on engineering, um, a, a, a couple different, uh, products, um, with the human nutrition project, um, just some different profiles to really be able to, um, kind of support more of, uh, like a, like a fat burning, uh, fuel and, and those kind of things. And, and something that's a little bit healthier, cleaner in, in that aspect of, uh, uh, how we're, how we're putting it all together. So. Yeah, get to know the glycemic index, and then you can look at whatever the sugar or sugar substitute is in different products and, and sort of place them on the glycemic index and look for things that are just lower on the glycemic index, and they'll be a little easier on you. And I think if you're training and you're not, one of the things, too, is as Jason like hit on, I think when it becomes like racing, it's it's a little less important, but like, yeah, if you're, there's no need if like every weekend to be going out and doing your long run and stuff, you, you want to practice fueling, but some of your like long runs and longer workouts, you do want to try to get away from utilizing the fuel um, in, in those workouts and work on trying to train your body to be more efficient without the, you know, the fuel, maybe a little bit here and there, but if you're taking like two or three goos every Saturday, you're really not helping your body uh, become more efficient because you're providing those those nutrients in there. But there's times where, you know, when you're racing, you want to make sure that you're optimally fueled. And so, you know, doing like a cliff shot or something like that, like when you're like, okay, this is, this is how I'm going to race. I'm going to specifically try to figure out how this works leading up to my race because making sure that you're properly fueled and, and when you're training, like, and when you're racing, you know, the, the, the glycemic, you, you do want to try to work on the, the, the glycemic, um, you know, index as well, but making sure that your, your body is processing it, uh, correctly as well. So, you know, some of those more sugar-based stuff and when you're, when you're working out really, when you're actually racing, the glycemic index is a little less important, but if you're doing it like, you know, every Saturday weekend and week out, or, you know, every one of your workouts, you're having to take a goo, that's a sign that your body in your, your bonking, that's just a sign that your body's not working that you're, you're basically trying to overcome a bet, you know, so you need to figure out, okay, a, why can't I do, you know, a 15 mile run with some workouts, uh, without any fuel. And, and then, you know, when you get specific about this is, you know, I want to take fuel in for my race, then you have the certain workouts where you basically are going to practice utilizing that fuel and stuff like that. So, um, so I think it's not something to, to stress out as much about, but if you're doing it week in and week out, that's when it becomes a problem because you might be taking in a hundred grams of sugar in uh you know in in, a, in an hour and a half to three hours worth of running so yeah i'm a big fan of the ucan i use that for my marathon racing and i think from a gel perspective the huma gels are pretty good at least that's yeah. one that i often advise my athletes to try because it's very simple all organic ingredients they use fruit puree to as a source of sugar versus the high fructose corn syrup so it can be a really good choice for people also has some chia in there which is known to have some 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 i guess benefits in longer workouts and things like that so stabilizes the release of the glucose in the product yeah that's the only one that doesn't make me sick either i like (laughs) want to just throw it back up because it tastes so disgusting there are also like those that are more on the fat side too there's um 
pro there's there are gels for people that are kind of like pushing that fat up that adaptation envelope there's one called f-bomb um vespa is another product that's designed to sort of like help tap into fat utilization during endurance activity and you can kind of look up either one of those and you'll find a rabbit hole of different products that you can check out cool all right next question what do you think of protein supplementation with powders what about supplementation with something like athletic greens which i guess is intended to supplement your your vegetable intake in theory uh this is a good question i guess um the first thing that i would say about protein supplements is that i try to get those macronutrients through my diet first and foremost like that's really where i want to focus and if i'm not getting the right macronutrient balance for some reason then i want to understand that the big reason for this is that our macronutrients are also an important source of our micronutrients. So if you're eating a lot of um, animal foods, then you're going to get a lot of the micronutrients that you need, a lot of essential amino acids and um, just, you know, a lot. Of, so you're also going to get protein when you're eating meat. And so I try that first. Um, I've given up on protein supplementation also because I haven't really found a product that makes me feel comfortable about eating it when I look at the ingredient list. Um, that was protein. What was the other part of the question? There? Athletic greens. Athletic greens. Yeah. I don't know much about athletic greens. So I would say for, for the most part, I, I totally agree with Jason. Um, I think trying to get most of your uh, nutrients from like a food based source uh, is, is really the best way to go. One of the things, especially in, in, in commercialized protein powders, and a lot of people are very unfamiliar with this, but like the plant-based proteins and stuff that you find on the market, like a couple years ago, there was a huge issue with like heavy metal contamination in those things. So the quality of those proteins, and you don't really know, uh, you know, it could be organic, could be all of that, but the quality of those proteins, um, as far as some of the other things that are obviously being somebody who works with, you know, supplements and actually makes our own, it, it, there, there is a lot of really poor sources of protein. And a lot of the commercial grade people are using those products that are, you know, they're cheaper. And so, yeah, you don't know, you know, okay, I may be getting some like organic protein, but am I getting like some cadmium? Am I getting some lead? Am I getting some arsenic? It was kind of shocking when they released some of these studies on on the 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 heavy metals that are in some of the plant-based proteins those kind of things like that so i'm big on um on really doing it you know from like a food-based standpoint now it, it, if you're not getting enough it, it, it can be beneficial but you want to look for um you know the, a lot of finding that healthcare practitioner that works with some of the the lines that you know they're they're actually maybe testing more for heavy metals or they're looking for like a cleaner source of of protein there's there's definitely levels of quality versus like what you can get off the shelf versus like if you're working with like a healthcare practitioner one of the basic things that i've actually found for adding a little bit of protein is i, I really like a lot of the collagen powders uh you're you're getting things that help to restore your joint connective tissue they dissolve really easily just looking for a grass-fed collagen is 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 good uh you know making sure that that you know that that you're using something that's clean in that avenue Another protein I actually like is um, uh, it's a hydro beef protein, um, which is it's a, a hydrolyzed uh, beef protein in, in a shake form, and it, it works pretty good. Um, I, it's really hard to say with the the plant proteins. You know, you can do really just hemp seeds in general. Just the whole hemp seed is is really a great way to just get them because then you're getting some omegas, you're getting uh, some of the nutrients and all that, and they haven't been as refined, and so. Another thing to consider that most people think about is, you know, we're talking about glycemic index as well, that a lot of protein powders actually have a high glycemic index. So things like whey protein is very insulinogenic. It, it can stimulate the body the same way that like sugar does. And so a lot of people talk about using whey protein and stuff like that after your workout to kind of refuel the muscles, which is, which is good. You know, you want to get those amino acids, get those things back in. But this constant hit of like, as we were talking about insulin, 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 you're trying to force recovery and, and things like that. It, it can have an effect. And so doing a whey protein shake first thing in the morning with a bunch of fruit in it and things like that, it's like now you've just skyrocketed your blood yeah. sugar for the day. Um, and I don't think people are aware of that. They think, oh, I add in protein and it stabilizes my blood sugar. 
but really it's more the the protein that you're eating from like you know plants animals uh those kind of things are they're more stabilizing but a lot of these protein shakes actually have a very high insulinogenic effect in the body because they're again stripped out of a lot of fiber and nutrients and things like that that help them process so i think that's important is you really want to focus on on those things and then really yeah like i would say from a plant standpoint just doing like whole hemp seeds is is actually a good standpoint like rice and pea protein have a tendency to be pretty those were some of the big ones that had uh a lot of the heavy metal contamination and so unless you're finding a source of somebody who's actually specifically testing their their protein powders for heavy metals and 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 doing that you don't really know and so you want to make sure that that you're looking at that uh i like the collagen uh powders super easy i put some in my coffee stir it up in the morning and it it does it just stirs right in um and then uh there's designs for health has a hydro beef protein that we recommend a lot of times for our maybe our football players and stuff like that that are trying to to put on a little bit of extra mass and and, and those kind of things so i i do like uh i do like that and that's from you know grass-fed cows and and all of that so I think we'd be remiss if we didn't make some recommendations for our vegan and vegetarian friends out there who aren't going to eat the meat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I guess um, other than um, other than seeds, what are we looking at? Nuts, nut butters, good sources of protein. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there there's a new uh, product that I'm super interested in. Um, it's actually a shiitake mushroom powder. Um, because the way that you can cultivate and grow mushrooms and all that is actually pretty clean. Um, I, so I haven't tried it yet, but it looks really promising. And I know a couple of the companies that I um, trust pretty well as far as in our practice are, are, are putting it out. And so there's, there's some different things that are, that are coming out in those areas. But yeah, nuts and seeds, um, you know, legumes, if you can hand, make sure that if you're making your legumes that you're pressure cooking them because it breaks down the lectins, uh, you know, and just making sure to com combine those things. But hemp seeds are really a great source of, of protein. A couple, a couple tablespoons of those have the, the amino acid profile very similar to like a collagen powder or something like that. And so you could kind of sprinkle those on on a lot of things and 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 so um yeah the, i just know the rice and pea protein just if you if you're looking make sure that you're if you're going to do a vegan protein that you're maybe checking with the company to make sure that they're screening for heavy metals and then you know a pea protein something like that could actually be really good you just want to make sure that you're not getting any of the extra stuff that goes along obviously organic those kind of things as well too yeah. but yeah just making sure that you're you're kind of vetting the sources and i know i've seen a lot of stuff come across like you know, recently, like in our, um, you know, in our practice where a lot of people are, are they're starting to, to really, it, it, it got really brought to the attention. So I think a lot of people are being a little more cognizant about their sources and things like that. So, so I would just say, you know, just do your, do your due diligence, make sure that they're testing plant-based proteins for heavy metals, um, those kind of things. So, yep. All right. And we'll come back to lectin when we get in a deep dive on inflammation and insulin. Yes. <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, it's an important point, but we don't have time for it here. I guess, Chris, for that question, I'd just go back to first principles. You know, when I talk, we basically talk about cutting out processed and refined foods and protein powders are going to fall in that category. Yeah. You want to do it natural. Get it through your diet. A related question. Can you cover suggestions for protein nutrition bars that are good for snacking? Of course, non-processed foods are best, but it's hard to stick to that when traveling or super busy at work and need something quickly. So I've got two I like. Uh, Epic bars I think are pretty good. They're paleo-friendly. They're using um, typically all grass-fed products and um, like uh, organic sort of preservatives like celery powder and that sort of thing. Um, uh, the Lara bars are pretty good. They're usually like three or four ingredients. Uh, it's real food. The bars just basically pulverized and pressed together. So the processing is really minimal. Um, those do have a high sugar content though. So that's something that I'll just eat. Like if I'm out for a long run or in a race or something like that. And then, um, nut butters, you know, I think are, that's also a good thing to have around this kind of like a snack. You can get the pouches. Um, and then fruit. It's also a good opportunity to eat fruit as for a snack. If, uh, you know, you want to go after like a banana or an apple or take that same fruit and add some peanut butter to it or have a cup of berries or something like that. Yeah, I say uh, some of the bar, I actually, I, I actually like the bulletproof bars. 
Um, those ones, um, they, they, they seem to, to do pretty well. I've liked those. Uh, Primal Kitchen also just released um, some new bars and things like that as well that are made from like food-based ingredients, those kind of things, kind of macronutrient balanced in, in, in those areas. And so, uh, you know, Epic Bars obviously are, are, are fantastic. Lara Bars are, you know, th those are a great option as well. Um, yeah, Primal Kitchen and and Bulletproof both have some good ones that uh, I'm gonna look them up. Yeah, that I um, that that I've used in the past as well. Um, Designs for Health is another company. It's a, a practitioner based company, but they have uh, a pure paleo bar that I also really like. Um, it's the it's uh, hemp and pea and then the hydro beef protein um, all combined and uh, into one. And so I've you know tried a bunch of those and I actually really like those as well. Again, macronutrient balanced with some coconut oil and some tapioca and, and things like that. So um, really good for like stabilizing blood sugar. But I think, you know, bars are, are, are great, but it's hard. You know, you want to make sure that they're like as close to food as possible. But still, even when you're like refining and packaging things like that, it becomes a little bit of a, a challenge. And so back to the kind of the athletic greens. Um, you know, green supplements are good. One of the things I always, and this is always my little caveat with some of those is like, everybody wants to put the whole kitchen sink and all these greens are like, you know, it's like all the stuff that, you know, you're supposed to eat. One of the things that I find um, quite regularly with some of those products, I mean, I think they're great for trying to get in greens and chlorophyll and obviously we don't eat enough greens, but a lot of times from a sensitivity standpoint is, is typically... There's a, usually like a couple things in there that like somebody might react to or their body might not do very well with. Um, so I always like to s stick to things that are a little more like just simpler, like few ingredients, things like that. And if you look at like a lot of these multi-green powders, I mean, it's like there's like 30 ingredients. And yeah, it's, you know, might be wheatgrass and barley grass and alfalfa and all these kind of things. And they're all natural. But how many times in, in real life are you putting all of those things in, uh, you know, unless you're making like a killer salad, right? Like, you <laughs> yeah. know, there, there's a lot of times you're not mixing all those things together. And so from the, the you know, our body's pretty smart, but just to, it, it's just, it's a lot of stuff for, because everything has its own kind of energetic signature and stimulates your body a little bit differently. And so, so you know, sometimes they can be good at first, but I often find that sometimes people will start out after using them over time, they just become a little bit sensitive to, to some of those things. But, you know, for, for the most part, I think they're okay. And they're, they've got some good benefits, but, but it can, I, I do find that some people can, you know, just become a little sensitive to them using them all the time because there's just so much stuff in them. System overload, huh? Yeah. So next question. I've heard that you can tell something about a person's diet, but where they carry their fat. Is that true? If so, what insights can you offer there? So that's not 100% accurate. Uh, okay. I think what you can tell about how people, what, one of the things that, I've been, that, that we've been able to figure out is hormonal imbalance. Um, that's typically more what you're, you're going to see is like, is this more of like a stress hormone, sex hormone? like in balance. And so there's different like ways that people will carry their weight that, uh, you know, when they, when they gain weight and it's more, it, it, it's more their dominant kind of like hormonal pathway. And I think they're, you know, obviously it's not like a hundred percent accurate, but you can kind of get an idea if it's like, you know, excess stress hormone, or if they have like excess, like sex hormones of certain kinds there's there's or, or you know thyroid hormone deficiency like those kind of things like that where you can use it as a tool but there's not really like diet wise it, it really you know the, the, there's diet affects the hormones right but i i don't think there's any way of like like diet you can't like be like you know what i'm gonna do this diet and it's gonna blast all my belly fat or it's like you know i'm carrying a little more junk in the trunk i'm gonna do xyz diet and i'm gonna you know i'm, I'm gonna drop that off that, that's that's just not that's not an accurate thing but there are some areas where like when you have like excess of certain hormones say like excess of cortisol you might you know hold a little more uh fat around the midsection if you have like excess estrogen, you may hold more in like the, you know, like in, in the, the mids, like the lower midsection, your glutes. Uh, if you have excess, like, you know, you feel like like around your legs or swelling in your legs, that may be a sign of like 
some hormonal thing. So it's like, and if like, yeah, you can just, you can, there, there's a number of different ways that you can kind of look at some of those. So yeah, sometimes you have like swelling in the legs. It could be thyroid, you know, midsection and, and, and glutes and hips is sometimes an estrogen dominant issue. And, uh, midsections is, is, is excess cortisol or stress hormone. And so it's about kind of working on figuring out why those are in excess or deficient that you need to, to balance that out. But that's, that again, that's a little bit like anecdotal. It's not like a hundred percent correlated, but yeah. The, and then the diet and how they affect those things are really important. But then again, that's just going way more in depth into the, like figuring out like, you know, your stress hormone, you know, sex hormone, yeah. blood chemistry, like those kind of things. There's no diet where you can be like, I'm doing the ab diet or I'm doing the booty <laughs> diet, you know, like, <laughs> well, a lot of it comes out of genetics, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. just where, where, how your body's constructed manifests because of what your DNA says. Yeah. And, and so that's, you, you have these tendency to move down certain pathways when your body's under stress, just because of how your genes are. And so understanding that you can help to kind of facilitate and, and assist your body into processing certain things. Um, with certain nutrients, when you start to understand genetically how your body kind of works a little bit better, and then like looking at your blood chemistries and those kind of things to figure out, you know, how that kind of happens. So, okay, next question, and I don't know that any of us are old enough to really answer this most effectively, but he, this this listener says, "I'm curious if there are any special nutrition slash recovery considerations for older runners." So I would say the, the big thing, and this, this kind of goes for all runners, but uh, like protein synthesis is, it, it just slows down as we age. And so I think focusing a lot on protein as a, a, like as an older athlete is like super important. So as, as most athletes, as we say, it's like protein should be the cornerstone of your, your, what you're doing. Like you want to make sure that you're, you're getting, you know, about 0.8 to one gram per pound of body weight uh, as far as your general protein recommendation. And I think that, every day, yeah, every day. Yep. So like if you're, you know, a 150 pound runner, you want to be consuming between like 120 and 150, uh, grams of protein per, per day. And I know a lot of people think that seems like a lot, but it was, it was nice. We, we use thrive market and we order their meat like packages and they've got some like eight to like 10 ounce steaks that are in there. And so like a steak is like 62 grams of protein. Right. And so you, it, it may not that like you have one steak like for your evening meal and you've got some of that covered. Um, and, and so I think that, that may really focusing on protein. And then one of the things that as, as an older athlete and I talking to a master's athlete who is probably one of the most successful master's athletes that I know, she was like, yeah, there's a point to where, you know, you can't do like three workouts a week where, you know, she had to back back and, uh, you know, take out one workout a week or modify different workouts. Um, at, you know, because it, it is that, that protein synthesis and recovery slows down a little bit. So you've got to, you know, you just really got to be paying attention to recovery and, and stress management, uh, making sure you're getting your protein, you know, just kind of staying on top of those things. And so, so that, that's really it is, is, you know, just kind of, you, you may, you may be able to perform just as well, but it's, you may just have to go do some more like easy running um, you know, and, and then really trying to, to figure out the, those, like the different types of workouts. And so talking to, you know, a number and working with a number of athletes, you know, that are older. And then even the ones that are, you know, racing, you know, like competitively as masters, one of the, the big things that they said is, is really, um, you know, having to kind of find that balance between, you know, I used to be able to do this in my, you know, like thirties and forties, but now I'm getting my late forties, fifties. You know, it's like, I just realized it's like, I can't do, you know, that maybe the, the, the amount of workouts it's like, and just figuring out how you affect your, your volume and intensity and those things. And maybe, yeah, you do a little bit less volume, a little more intensity, or maybe you do a little more volume or less intensity. And it's just about kind of, kind of figuring it out because the, the struggle really is about it. It's just the slowing of the like protein synthesis and recovery response. You may need you know, you may, you may have to, your, your micro cycle, instead of, you know, looking at a weekly thing, you may have to go out to like, a, like, you know, your, your macro micro cycle being like two weeks. So instead of planning, like, you know, I do a long run on Saturday, I do this workout on Tuesday, this workout on that, you may be able to, you know, get all those different types of training in, but it may be a 14 day cycle or a 21 day cycle where you're trying to, to cycle in all these different specific workouts you need. You just, 
open it up and, and you're basing it on like two week cycles instead of one week cycles or three week cycles instead of when you're trying to hit all of those different things. So it's kind of basically playing with the recovery because you may need from a hard workout instead of one or, or two days, you might need two or three or four days in between each hard workout. And you can still get, you, you, you may just be losing in a whole six month training cycle, you may just be losing like six to eight workouts but you're able to recover and perform just as well by just kind of spreading out the recovery in between each workout. And then I think probably a lot of the principles we've already talked about on the podcast become maybe more important, right? Like making sure that you prevent or reduce systemic inflammation as much as possible, um, you know, rest when you can, and then focusing on the recovery, you know, maybe take longer periods of some kind of like Maffetone style base building so you can really work on that aerobic capacity and um, and also focus on metabolic flexibility as much as possible. Will that kind of thing show up in the HRV readings for an older athlete? Will they be able to see it that way too? Yeah, you'll what you'll see is is as uh like the, it just it will take them a little bit longer to bounce back up. So let's say you do like a really hard session in the you know whereas like if you're in your 20s or 30s, you know you may be down for a day and then back up in a day. You may be down for like two or three days and then bounce back up. So yeah, it's gonna totally show up in that HRV and and that that's the nice thing about having you know a monitoring system like that is you can start to figure it out. And with the athletes that I've worked with in the past, you start to, it starts to be pretty predictable about when you can give them a workout and when they're ready. And then you start to see the signs of it. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah, so, so I think it will show up in that area. Cool. So we had one more thing about oxidative oxidation, but I think I'm going to pass that one until your, your ongoing rabbit holes. Yeah you know, that will happen as this podcast will extend to its own platform. So that's one thing as we leave you. First of all, I want to thank you guys for doing this series. Jason, Noah, this has been really fascinating for me. It's certainly been fun to have you on this podcast, but you guys are going to start your own. It's going to be called the Human Performance Project Podcast. It'll be available on iTunes soon, although it'll have its own platform for now. Looking to, for you guys, start to release weekly on Wednesdays following a same the same cycle we've been following for this mini series so <clears throat> look out for that I will make sure to link to where you can find that in, that information in the show notes for this episode and of course then it'll be up on iTunes and all the all all the places you can get podcasts over time as as you guys get started with this spin-off podcast which is super fun yeah, and so if you, uh, as I said before, uh, on my Instagram, Dr. Noah Moose, uh, you can kind of follow us on there. I do some different educational things as well too. So if you want to learn some more of the kind of the muscle meridian connections, um, other like different health things and stuff, there's some stuff on there. Jason's mentioned uh, our nutrition line that we have called the Human Nutrition Project. Um, you can follow us at the Human Nutrition Project on Instagram. It's basically underscores in between each one of the words. Uh, so yeah, learn more about the products that we're releasing as we're trying to create a culture for uh, healthier athletics and um, healthier athletes with just you know better products based on the things that we see and the athletes come in our office to cover some more of the general things as well too. So all that's coming musings from trail runs. Thanks, Chris. With with, with Jason and Noah. Thanks, guys, and thanks, of course, to our listeners for tuning in. It's been really fun to have have everybody engage on this one, and thanks for the questions provided for this episode today. Hopefully, you learned some additional notes. And again, check out the Human Performance Project podcast, which will be coming to a platform on its own starting next week. And that's it. This has been the fifth episode of our little mini-series on the, the Human Performance Project. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.